people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to our third episode on Peter Jackson's Get Back. I'm Daphne. I'm Phoebe. I'm Iris. And Talia is joining us. Hey Hello. guys. Hello, Hi. Talia. Hey, I'm so glad to be back. <laughs> Today, we're going to discuss the band dynamics of the Beatles as shown or illuminated in Get Back. The Beatles love each other. They say it all the time, both during and after the 60s. Everyone who knew them say that their bond was deep, unusual, and sometimes outright mystifying. We love them so much in large part because of how much they love each other. And that love is on full display in Get Back. From the group hug at the end of episode one, to the Paul and Ringo cuddle scenes, to George and John's outrage at the newspaper report of them fighting, it's quite clear that even though the breakup is in motion, these guys are still friends. So what does that mean for their artistic collaboration, specifically during the Get Back project? We're going to look at the Beatles dynamic as a band, first of all, a functional creative unit that requires ideas, execution of those ideas, project management, and yes, occasionally leadership. And then we will also discuss them as a surrogate family, which we think from an interpersonal standpoint probably suits them best. We will refrain from describing them as a pack of wild animals. <laughs> I really don't like comparing human males to wolf packs or cheetahs or gorillas. <laughs> it's junk science, first of all, uh, because all of those animal families have different social structures. Comparing them to humans is faulty and pointless and also just like the desire to turn human males into predators on the savannah i just find corny <laughs> and embarrassing oh, yeah. <laughs> it's also just kind of regressive and sexist yeah and furthermore it kind of in this day and age smacks of like the incel mentality that kind of language like mm -hmm. alpha beta cuck and all that nonsense <laughs> yeah which yes. we're just we're not down with so suffice it to say we believe that human beings of all genders are infinitely capable of forming loving cooperative relationships be they familial or romantic or friendship or even just like non-competitive working relationships furthermore art is inherently creative not destructive and therefore we find an excessive emphasis on leadership to be distracting and tiresome, especially when it is 
invoked in moments that are irrelevant. Yeah. John was the leader is used as if it's an answer to some question. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, but right. It does, it's not an answer to anything. Yeah. But it's treated like it's the multi purpose answer to yeah. every question about the band ever. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're not co workers who share office space. They do work together. At this point, they are business partners. It's a new organization. They're trying something pretty radical for that time. It's a pretty and courageous There's a lot move. of money in it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of money tied up. Right, there's, exactly. Uh, the stakes are really high. Yes. And they're doing that together in addition to being a family. Yes. They're business partners, they're creative partners, and they're best friends. And on top of that, you know, there's all kinds of other <laughs> emotions that sort of border on more than friends between all of them. It's like sometimes yeah. there's romantic tension. Sometimes there there's jealousies. Sometimes Spiritual they want to spiritual tension with each other's wives or mm. girlfriends. And, you know, like yeah. they're, they're vying for favoritism with the uh, authority figures in their lives. Like they're all up in each other's business. So yeah just the very idea like there's just one big dog and then there's a bunch of other smaller dogs who follow around is stupid these are not dogs these are human beings yeah these are guys who have known each other since they were teenagers who have been through a completely unprecedented human experience together and who now do things like sit around and talk about each other's souls that is, that's not a typical French. It's not even a typical family relationship. No, yeah. it's not. I mean, it's extraordinary and it's beautiful. And yeah, I think that's what really attracts people to this band in the end. Mm-hmm. The music is enough. And I think that's what draws everybody in at first. But to continue to follow this band and to want to know more about their historical trajectory and to try and understand their relationships, the whole reason anybody finds that appealing is because of that, not because there was one leader man who was in charge mm-hmm. and everybody just said, yes, sir. And Well, they're not like a platoon that's going yeah. into battle. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, well, John was has decorated with five stars and Paul <laughs> only had four stars. So therefore, you know, like, so we just think it's very reductive and not helpful and not insightful to talk about them in this way and we really wish it would stop and it's getting worse too it's like a fetish Fetish, yeah it is absolutely a fetish we don't believe that there is a single infallible and eternal leader of the beatles and we don't think anyone in the beatles believes that either (laughs) (laughs) the singular leader theory that john lennon was the original immortal and irrefutable leader of the beatles is a model or belief system that does exist and it is most successfully and famously argued by mark lewison in his tune-in book but the acom model is that leadership was fluid within the beatles usually between john and paul and that the two of them were leaders in different ways and on different occasions and that they often led cooperatively rather than competitively similar to spouses or parents Regarding Paul as a leader, I think that in his areas of expertise, namely music, ideas, and drive, Paul is a perfectly serviceable leader to everyone in Get Back except George Harrison, which I don't mean as a criticism of George at all. George has any number of reasons to be suspicious of Paul's 
leadership if his experience is that Paul's leadership is not good for him. I totally respect that. Uh, for whatever reasons, John's leadership doesn't smother George like Paul's does. There's a great quote uh, from Ian Leslie in his article, The Banality of Genius, notes on Peter Jackson's Get Back, where he says that Paul has power without legitimacy. John has legitimacy, but no longer wants power. I think that that is a good breakdown and a good distinction to draw between John and Paul's leadership styles, um, because Paul doesn't seem to have that quality of legitimacy that John inspires socially in, in pretty much everyone, and very notably in George. And Paul knows this. He said it himself a million times in many different ways, but he also definitely knows what he wants musically. He knows how to get it, and he is always bursting with ideas. And that is leadership too. Ringo said also in 1970 that he would support John no matter what he did, if he jumped off the Eiffel Tower, I would support him because wow. he believes mm. in what he's doing. That's just such a contradiction to Paul and the, the drilling holes in the skull <laughs> kind of episode. Like, okay, John, you go ahead and do that. Well, that's, that's the thing is Paul will definitely not follow John. No. That's why John respects him. Yeah. And I know. The one quibble I would have with Ian Leslie is that I don't necessarily believe John doesn't want power. Mm. I would mm. say that John doesn't want responsibility. And mm -hmm. at the moment, he doesn't want to make the effort required to lead, <laughs> either because he doesn't have the energy or desire to do so. Um, sure, because because leading is not fun and games. Right. No. That's the other thing. It's hard work. It's hard. Yeah. Exactly. However, I do think that he always wants power. It's just a matter of when John chooses or maybe is able to flex that power. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and John, pretty shortly after this, John starts power mm -hmm. tripping hard at Paul. Yeah, the Liberty Bell happens on May 9th, where John, George, and Ringo all sign Klein as the Beatles manager and override Paul's objections to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then comes John's I want a divorce statement and all the stuff that leads up to Paul's McCartney album press release and it's interesting because again this whole like power versus legitimacy on the flip side I I think Paul kind of doesn't care about legitimacy right he doesn't he doesn't care about the leadership title yeah and he's he's happy to have behind the scenes power and let John have the label like he doesn't care exactly yeah he, and it's always been that way yeah I think he only cares about it insofar as not having it means he doesn't get what he wants. If it's, it's a problem. It's, <laughs> like exactly. it gets it's in his purely way. practical. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, obviously, Paul would prefer not to ruffle feathers. <laughs> and he'll expend quite a bit of energy, really, trying to avoid conflict. But when push comes to shove, <laughs> if, <laughs> if he has to ruffle feathers to realize his vision, he will. Every yes. time. He's like, I yeah. would prefer that you just give me what I want. Exactly. <laughs> and not make me feel guilty about it. Yes, exactly. However, if I need to get nasty, I will. <laughs> it can be very benevolent if everyone just does what I want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we and can work it out. That's right. Oh my gosh. Yes. 
Oh my God, in a nutshell. Yeah. We can work it out. Just admit that I'm right about everything. That's right. And do exactly do I what to, I say. Do I, do I have to keep going on and on and on? <laughs> and so that, that's got to be why George super does not necessarily appreciate Paul's attempts at diplomacy because he knows that, sure, Paul will be as diplomatic as he can be right up until the point of ever actually (laughs) changing his mind and compromising his vision so is that diplomacy really for george's sake it's more for it's just for the sake of like why be messy when you can be clean (laughs) (laughs) and george i think in particular like just personality wise he would find that particularly hurtful i think or at least annoying because Mm -hmm. ultimately he values cooperation and good times between music buddies more than the finished product like the the traveling wilburys really are a a remarkable communal project at least by the standards of the rock and roll world and for whatever reason george felt that john gave him more of that than paul did yeah well who wants to feel like they're being worked over I mean, this has been rehashed over and over again, even before Get Back, but I am glad that people are at least seeing the four of them needed somebody else to take care of all those little details for them. Absolutely. Someone they could trust. Yes. There is a lot of talk in fan spaces, a lot of acknowledgement of the fact that their logistical struggles are due to losing Brian and that his loss is a major problem for the Beatles, not just emotionally, uh, and interpersonally but practically and yet there's also criticism in the same breath sometimes of paul for spending so much energy trying to address those logistical details like i don't like he's being petty <laughs> or oblivious or something that scene where where paul seems to be I guess I should say scenes where Paul seems to be kind of fixated on, we need structure, we need a schedule, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we need uh, a set list, all of that stuff. That is the kind of thing that Brian used to provide. And so it's yeah. not stupid or insensitive of him to see that they are <laughs> lacking that and to try yeah. to provide it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if he's not doing a perfect job of it. And he was trying to get everyone else to be on board with providing it probably to be like okay everybody's sure. gonna be more likely to follow this if they co-authored it of course if you're writing your own rules you can't come back later and be like i hate these rules it's like well you co-authored them <laughs> so but getting yes. everybody involved and pitching yeah. in they feel more in control sure. yeah i think he had kind of a really good idea it's just the others for whatever reason weren't seeing what he was trying to say yeah or they weren't into that they wanted it to be an external (laughs) authority figure telling them what to do i guess and i think paul would have preferred it to be an external source as well exactly exactly so nothing is more uh, maddening and like regressive honestly than watching people dump on somebody for doing thankless but necessary work yes that is full-on bullshit so to me here is why the leadership conversation matters because personally Honestly, I really don't care if Beetle Bros <laughs> want to call John the leader with a capital L. It's a classic cult of personality thing. A lot of dudes are just super enamored with the idea yeah. of a person who inspires other people to follow them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Whether or not they're actually worth following. <laughs> right, right. 
like John Lennon is absolutely the kind of leader who as a teenager could say to his posse, let's go rob a bookstore with our underwear on our heads. And they'd all be like, <laughs> yes, great idea, John. You are so cool. Absolutely and they'd true. all do it. Mm-hmm. They would all do it. Mm-hmm. That's an ability that can be used for good or for ill. Yeah. yeah. And John used it for both throughout his lifetime. That right. part of him was real and powerful for me, it's like the least interesting thing about him, but whatever, yeah. dudes really love it. So fine. They can <laughs> yeah. call him the leader. I really, I really don't mind because to me, a leader isn't better than everyone. It's just yeah. a yeah, particular yeah. role, role. Yeah. or <laughs> or even being a leader in a great way. It still doesn't make the leader better than anyone else. Yeah. It's just the role that they fulfill. Candidates, you know, people who we run for office or whatever, they're not necessarily the people with the best ideas. But for some reason, they have that weird characteristic of leadership that makes people want to follow them, even if they're douchebags, which half the time they are. But the problem within the fandom is the attendant attitude that being the leader, however you define that, entitles John to special treatment and consideration. Yeah. That it gives Mm -hmm. him the right to be an asshole. Mm. Yeah. Yes he's justified in doing that and he's justified in using whatever means necessary to put Paul back in his place because Paul isn't the leader and is wrong and sneaky and uppity for trying to assume that position. So that is the reason to me that it's important if boring to explore the ways that Paul was a different kind but equally important leader Mm -hmm. in order to undermine this toxic false dichotomy and gross apologism for John's worst behaviors and by the way the same thing goes for Paul's style of leadership we have tons of evidence including numerous quotes from insiders that Paul was the most natural producer like Mm -hmm. studio producer in the band but that doesn't make him better than the others it's just a role that he fulfills because he's good at it personally I find it very interesting form of leadership which is why I like to talk about it all the time but it doesn't make Paul better and it Mm -hmm. doesn't and shouldn't give him the right to be an asshole either it's not an excuse for the times he was an impatient dick to George though maybe it's worth considering as a mitigating circumstance just like John's natural charisma is a mitigating circumstance for the fact that people eagerly follow him when he decides he wants to be nasty. But we're not going to get books saying, but then producer Paul called a meeting at Cavendish to discuss. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. It was important for Ringo to identify who the natural producer in the band was. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to get any of that. Because it's not as sexy. No, but it has the alliteration, like Leader Lennon. It really needs to come up. True. Hey. As we were saying about the lunchroom tape, uh, the fact that Paul sometimes acts as a mentor or a coach or a teacher with John definitely undermines this idea that there's always a straightforward, simplistic hierarchy that invariably starts with John at the top and ends with Ringo at the bottom. A great example is at one point in Get Back, George is talking about a new song that he's just been writing. And he says to John, I keep hearing your advice in my head about when you start one, finish it right away. And John goes, oh yeah, but I, I never follow that advice. Ha ha ha, but it's the best way to do it. Now, John gives an interview 
later that year in October of 1969, and he repeats this on the air. He says, this is the advice I gave to George, you know, when you start one, finish it right away. But I actually got the advice from Paul. Uh, once I gave George the advice of, on songwriting, so when you start one, finish it. And I think I got the advice from Paul or working with Paul. In this instance, you can trace the advice. Like you see the chain. It starts from Paul, goes to John, then to George. And so it's easy to imagine that sometimes this is probably how knowledge and ideas filtered down through the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You can see it as far back as the Quarrymen when Paul's teaching John the proper chords, how to tune his guitar, yeah. time to get matching outfits. You know, <laughs> it's not always John issuing a decree. The nice thing about John and Paul throughout the 60s is they shared information and they grew together. Yeah. As Paul has said many times, when one knew more about something, they would teach the other. And even though John is older, I don't really see it as John is always Paul's mentor. Usually they are learning and discovering things in tandem. Um, And again, when they're not, when one of them is learning outside of their little bubble, it's just as often Paul learning something and bringing it to John than it is, you know, vice versa. So I see that as a partnership, an equal partnership. And if it's not a straightforward situation where John learns everything first and then information filters down from John. For example, George brings the sitar in. He's learning about meditation. He brings Mm -hmm. that into the group. You know, he's spearheading all of that and he's teaching the rest of the band about it. And Ringo also performs leadership functions at times. Like John has that great quote about how if Ringo was on your side, you knew you were in the right. Yeah. Yes, and Ringo reiterated this recently. The thing is if, the other two had a row. It would always get fixed up in my house. Right. <laughs> it was like the neutral territory, you know, because you can't help it. You know, you're so close and then the writing and mm. wanting it this way and what's that. And Ringo is obviously performing this sort of emotional leadership in Get Back when he sees that Paul looks like he needs some extra TLC and he gives it to him. <laughs> like he's almost acting as sort of like the resident Paul whisperer <laughs> at times. You like Paul is the beautiful, temperamental stallion, and Ringo's the wise old ranch hand. Oh, no. No. <laughs> I can make this animal analogy. Uh, it's legal because Ringo loves Western movies. So. <laughs> Brushes his mane, I guess. Yeah, yeah. like stands really close. Feeds him yeah. carrots. You know. That's why Heather is brushing his hair. In the That's movie. right. So. I think it's clear by the late 60s that the Beatles are not a pack of teenage boys. And (laughs) they're all to an extent following their own paths. And while I agree that that doesn't render John's history of leadership from when they were teenagers completely meaningless, I also don't think that it makes him leader for life in their eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also don't understand how, on one hand, you can be critical of Paul for not allowing George to grow out of his junior role, and at the same time argue that John should remain in his superior role as the eldest quarryman for eternity. <laughs> yeah, John is not the once and future king. And if George has outgrown his role, which we all agree he has, 
then Paul has also long outgrown his role as John's lieutenant, you know, when he was 16 years old. <laughs> like the Beatles as men have long outgrown the need for a leader. The, the great thing about a piano is like, there it all is. There's all the music ever. That's yeah. it, you know. All this has ever been written is all there, you know. Yeah. So another discussion point has been the really tight deadlines that um, the Beatles seem to be working with and their schedule. And it's sometimes presented as either they're working on this album or <laughs> they're taking a well-deserved, much-needed rest. And it's certainly not unreasonable to think, oh, geez, they just finished a double album in the last half of 68. Why are they pushing themselves like this? And some people have gone, oh, wow, look at how amazing it is that Paul had the drive to do all this work when the others lack that drive. So even if people aren't calling the others lazy, there's sometimes a bit of Paul's amazing for doing work at this time kind of attitude. But in reality, work isn't the issue. Ringo's getting ready to do Magic Christian. George is writing up a storm, including working on a musical with Derek Taylor yeah, at the right? same time as the Get Back <laughs> sessions. Uh, according to Tony Barrel's The Beatles on the Roof, Derek and George were working on the musical in the evenings at Apple and at Kin Fonz. So he's, he's going, like George is on mm. a tight schedule with this, and he's going on to work on a musical in his evenings. So he's yeah. clearly ready to work. Ringo's also writing music, which we saw in Get Back. And John produced a lot during and after this period as well. And um, we, we always get Ringo's quote about relaxing in the garden with John. <laughs> yeah. Hearing the phone ring. ring. <laughs> we know it's, it's him. <laughs> 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 Calling to get them to the studio. <laughs> like He's joking about it. But yeah, like that reading doesn't bear out when you look at what was actually happening. Um, I mean, in one of their earlier breaks, John made a movie. They were all active doing different projects during their breaks. Like George produced Jackie Lomax after the White Album. Um, and like we just said, like Ringo was signed up to make Magic Christian right after they'd done Get Back. And so they had plenty of breaks from one another and plenty of time to pursue other interests and projects. Yeah. And also just to hang by the garden or pool and recharge. <laughs> The other thing we need to rethink is the idea that just because Paul was on fire creatively, the others are checked out and not interested or not contributing ideas. That's another thing I've seen in a lot of places, this idea that John showed up to Twickenham empty-handed, mm. like he hadn't written enough songs, when in reality, he's already, okay, he's already got, let's list them, give me some truth, don't let me down, across the universe, child of nature, dig a pony and then during the sessions he also comes up with madman and the beginnings of i want you she's so heavy so in what universe is that not enough songs to contribute to a 14 track album okay i feel like john's like lack of output at this time is super exaggerated fair from what i've seen yeah it was so crazy watching all of these like obstacles keep piling up about their deadlines and stuff and I was just I kept thinking why have you done this to yourself <laughs> you fools <laughs> but then I kind of got into that whole thing and I have changed my mind about it because my theory of the moment is right the original project was super doable within their time constraints 
the original idea is arrange for live performance and rehearse some existing material white album songs and maybe a few goldie oldies as george <laughs> calls them <laughs> then as they're rehearsing throw in whatever new material they've got rehearse it get ready to perform it record a tv performance of it at twickenham figure out another venue for a cool live performance meanwhile michael lindsey hogg films everything and they get one of their contractual films out of the way plus they now have material if they want to release a live album now that is a solid plan to my way of thinking and totally doable mm -hmm. in three and a half weeks yeah by past beetle project deadline standards like that's that's a wealth of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where it gets dicey is when they switch to the concept of a totally fresh album, all new songs yeah. only. The problem being they can't also change their deadlines because uh, the deadlines are very real yeah. and very set. Like they would have to lose their producer halfway through because Glenn Johns is booked. They'd have to press pause on everything for however long Ringo is busy making a movie. They'd have to disappoint fans. They'd probably need to renege on the many, many, many people it takes on the payroll to keep the cogs turning on big projects like these, et cetera, et cetera. So three and a half weeks is now definitely more of a challenge, but if you look at it, it's still totally consistent with their earlier albums, which were also stripped back live performance, raw, no overdubs, no overcomplicated production, even yeah. Rubber Soul was recorded in just four weeks, and it actually took less time to do that in terms of studio hours. Like the stripped down sound after Pepper is usually seen as something that John wanted. Yeah, right? that's true. And John also got what he wanted in terms of the Abbey Road side A not being part of the kind of medley that George Martin um, and Paul had kind of wanted to have for, for that album. Um, so but yeah, if we say that maybe even though Paul was brimming with ideas and energy, uh, the others had ideas and wanted to play Beatle music too, because George and Ringo yeah. were very positive about the White Album, um, right. then the story can't really be that the others lost interest in being Beatles and didn't care about their songs getting on albums, which we see mm -hmm. is just obviously not true, which interferes with the Paul was the only one who cared argument. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. When we look at these things, I always have to ask, what is this holding up? You know, sometimes it's just a matter of, it's just been said so many times. It's just hard to think around something that you've just accepted as true. Yeah. Um, but sometimes those things are part of the structural integrity of your overall storyline that you're trying to push. Uh, yeah, it makes a lot of <laughs> sense. Because why is this such an issue? Well, in September of 69, they sign a contract in which they are legally obligated to put out seven albums per year between the four of them. And they're like, sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean. They have every intention of doing that. Yeah. yeah, they all agreed. Yeah, and that's such an important point as well. Cause like, okay, if the Beatles are too burned out for a new project right now, it's not just Paul who's unaware of that fact. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. John, George and Ringo, seem to think multiple albums per year is totally reasonable too yes like it sounds bonkers to us but it didn't sound bonkers to them no no yeah seven albums a year no sign problem. us up yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that's the pace the Beatles have been going at for the past 10 years well, though that's, I mean like it's absolutely true it's yeah. not crazy I mean it is crazy but like the whole Beatles career is fucking crazy right it it uh it fits <laughs> yeah. yeah and again they yeah. had them for the they have a whole month it's so it's not even that wild for Paul to say oh okay listen it's January 3rd we have until the 30th so we have a whole freaking month to come up with a decent idea like we should be able to do that guys and he's not wrong if they Mm -hmm. could just get together communicate and focus they could come up with a halfway decent idea you know and they could probably come up with some really good ideas because the Beatles are really good at that and as far as the deadlines being fake or whatever like says who like we're it's very clear what all the deadlines are you know there's a shooting Mm -hmm. schedule Twickenham is booked Glenn Johns is booked as we've also seen in Get Back the Beatles have their own personal lives and they're all doing other stuff too yeah so they don't have 12 months a year to do Beatle time they have a certain allotted amount of Beatle time and January has Mm -hmm. been reserved for the Beatles so they have to do all their Beatles stuff in January so that includes an album and a show then they do have to kind of be brainstorming about the show while they're recording the album also not for nothing but they're coming off a five-week vacation (laughs) people are talking about that like it's an insanely inadequate amount of downtime but is it (laughs) not to me no And I'm not saying that the type of work they did wasn't difficult or exhausting. I know it was, but the Beatles get to create and play music for a living, which from the footage is clearly something they really enjoy doing. And it gives them a huge emotional boost. And at this point in their career, they have a lot of cachet and they have a lot of creative control and they have people running to buy ties for them and shoes and <laughs> <laughs> whatever they want whenever they want they also get long periods of downtime in between this work like yeah. i just don't think the argument that this was an especially grueling pace of work for them really holds up here let's let's break it down a little bit okay there is no beetle work from early december 1967 mm-hmm. until february 15th 1968 yeah there well there is they do record um lady madonna and hey bulldog sure that's two songs (laughs) and for sure and let's i'll just stipulate that at the beginning there are a handful of photo shoots interviews singles scattered throughout this so no major beetle work happens from early december 1967 until february 15th 1968 then they go to india John and George leave India two months later, April 12th. The Wide Album sessions don't start until May 28th, so over a month after John and George get back from India, and the Wide Album sessions end on October 14th. Then I imagine there's probably a good amount of work to do, mixing, editing, album art, press, whatever, before the White Album is released November 22nd. And then they have five weeks off before they start the get back sessions in January 1969. So to recap, starting in December 1967, they get five weeks off, then two months in India, then six weeks off, then wide album work for four and a half months, and then five weeks off before get back starts. So surely that's not on its face an obviously ludicrously grueling schedule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think because of how productive they were in a short time and how quickly they tended to work when they did get into the studio, I think mm-hmm. that kind of exaggerates the pace. Mm. Uh, uh, mm. It creates an illusion of how much time they were spending on it. Uh, uh, good point. You can't argue with facts. Like I really do have time off. Right? Yeah. It's just that yeah. during the time they're working, they're incredibly productive. So it's it's kind of an optical illusion. Yeah. There's no change in math. Not yeah. in my house. <laughs> All about the math. I totally agree that in actuality and personally, it might have been too grueling to George John and or Ringo because maybe like they were carrying a huge energy deficit at this point from previous busier (laughs) beetle years like being a beetle is exhausting i'm sure Sure, so that's yeah so that's 100 percent valid but again if that's the case then none of them are cognizant of it because here is what they say in the first episode of get back when they're in twickenham big thank you to eleanor gray on her episode of i am the egg pod for (laughs) collating these i'm just (laughs) Quoting her directly here. (laughs) John says, the act of working inspires us to work. George says, it's good to work again after the White Album. And Ringo says, if you stay at home, you don't get inspired. Hold on. (laughs) Are you trying to criticize John and George for needing more time? You know what? I'm glad you asked me that, Phoebe. (laughs) Because believe me, I would be the last person on earth who would criticize any beetle for wanting (laughs) or needing longer to rest up, to recharge, to deal with personal lives, to pursue other projects, and very importantly, to decompress from the unique and compounding pressures of superstardom. I in no way judge them for that. It does not make them lazy. It doesn't make them lesser artists at all. Not at all. That is not what I'm saying. If they do need more time, it doesn't make them lesser artists, but it also doesn't make Paul a lesser artist for not needing as much downtime. Yeah. Yeah. He's writing music. It's not like he's making the Beatles build sets. Yeah. <laughs> or run laps. Yes. <laughs> They are working at a disadvantage, though, that John and Paul aren't writing alone at home and then bringing in more finished songs so they can yeah. get started right away in the studio. Yep. So that that is, you know, that is time consuming and frustrating. If John at any time had had said, hey, Paul, can you earmark some time for me? I'm going to come over, not with Yoko, just me. And we're going to write these songs. I definitely think Paul would have made time for him. Of course he would. Of course he would. But I mean, Paul says on like, yeah. the third day there, listen, I'm not married to Twickenham. If you guys hate mm-hmm. it, let's cut bait now. And if you guys don't yep. want to do a show, yes. like let's decide now, let's move on. Let's do something different. He's the least stuck in his ways of all of them. You know what I mean? Like he might occasionally yeah. get jammed into one corner, but otherwise he's zigzagging around the room like 24 seven. He'll go in any good direction. Like he goes with the best idea. Yeah. But if he's well, the only or, one putting out ideas, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, I, I think he wants a, com- you know, a commitment. I think he would settle for 
not the greatest idea as long as everyone agreed to it and then they could like land on it and work their magic and make it the best thing that they possibly could yeah and the rooftop ended up being amazing right well, that's true. <laughs> i love all the commentary that was like oh, got it to yeah it was stopped by the cops over the past month or so i've seen a lot of discussion of the Beatles as a workplace or you know discussed in terms of a workplace which if this was a traditional workplace Paul could fire George for insubordination and George could yeah. go over Paul's head and file a complaint about him I think it's a little disingenuous to talk about them in that manner you know that's not really the situation if this is a family and George and Paul are both my sons <laughs> <laughs> and they both are complaining to me i would tell them paul you need to back off give george some space he doesn't work as quickly as you do and i know that's frustrating but you need to have some patience in order to get the best out of him and also you need to find a way to make him feel important take him seriously treat him respectfully and make sure he feels like he's being heard and also, you need to be able to pass off to John sometimes. I know he's had problems and he hasn't been pulling his weight lately, but George listens to John. So the two of you need to get on the same page now. And to George, I would say, George, your brother is trying very hard to make everything work right now. He's dealing with a lot and he's doing the best he can. And I know you have some issues with him, but you're making his job 10 times harder. So you need to be mature and transparent about what your needs are. You cannot expect him to coax every little thing out of you. If you show up to work, then be there to work. I know Paul can be annoying, but show him some respect and let him do what he needs to do. I think that analogy works so much better than the workplace analogy, really. They need a, a mediator. Basically, what you did in that thought experiment is you pointed out to each sibling where they're having the breakdown in communication, what their personality differences are, and why they clash. And you're explaining very succinctly what each of them needs to do to meet the other halfway and meet the other person where they're at while still being mindful of how they're treating each other and how they're coming across. So the evidence suggests to me that George doesn't like being told what to do. And it might be as simple as John didn't try to tell George what to do. Yeah, because we see in Get Back that Paul and John both sometimes tell Ringo what they want and Ringo has no problem providing it. It appears to me that the problem isn't so much Paul versus the three of them, although it is easy to assume that is the case because of the Klein situation and the subsequent lawsuit and the narrative that springs up around that which is partly orchestrated by klein <laughs> through john to bolster their case <laughs> but rather than paul versus the three of them it's george versus paul yeah john and ringo adore paul and get back they love him which is a little surprising given how the story has always, always been told and i think it's surprising because people don't factor in the fact that when John, George, and Ringo are talking about Paul in the 70s, that they're either talking during a lawsuit 
or they're talking mm-hmm. during a time when they have every reason to try to retroactively justify their treatment of Paul during that lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. Especially after Klein tried to screw them and they fired him. And if they're motivated during the lawsuit to put disproportionate blame on Paul, that motivation doesn't go away when the lawsuit ends. There's now this desire to save face, especially mm-hmm. since Paul won the lawsuit. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. From their point of view, why should they ease up about Paul in public if Paul is the one who came out on top anyway? Mm-hmm. And he was eventually proved right about Klein. And sometimes it's harder to forgive someone for being right than for being wrong. It's normal. I think it's normal and understandable and human to deal with guilt about hurting someone by fixating on and even exaggerating how much they hurt you first. Yep. So if this is going on to some degree, I don't judge them for it at all. And I'm not even saying this is definitely what is always going on, but I think it's a hugely overlooked possibility that should be factored in. One thing that did really change for me after watching Get Back is that prior to get back, I had always assumed that the three against one was spearheaded by John because it is always sort of presented that way. Mm-hmm. It originated with John and then George jumped on board. Yes, that is just what I assumed for all these years because there wasn't really any reason to think otherwise. But after watching get back, I came away with the feeling that George might have been fostering John's negative feelings about Paul rather than the other way around Mm. because George is definitely the one who seems to have animosity towards Paul yeah that John doesn't have which I'm not saying that there aren't underlying issues between John and Paul obviously there are you know of course but um and I, I guess ultimately we can't know you know, John's behavior in late 69 has always been a bit mysterious. Like, where did all the, this aggression come from? And yep. Get Back almost made it more mysterious, right? Mm, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Because we see how close and affectionate they are. But George's position really isn't. We can see where George's is coming from. And we know that it, that there's been years of, of criticism from Paul that George has been building a presentment about. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you can just see it. They don't look each other in the eyes. They kind of turn their bodies away from yeah. each other a little bit. Like they're, they're yeah. not connecting. There are a few nice moments, like when For George sure. compliments Paul's beard and offers him a sandwich. <laughs> they don't um, hate each stuff. other's guts but there's there's tension between them that's it's hard most for them of to the work time. together yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard for them yeah. to work together um and when yeah. they do when they do connect you can tell that they're falling back on something that is mm. deep and old mm. yeah mm-hmm. george and paul should have just not worked together anymore they shouldn't have been music buddies anymore they should have been walking yeah. along the beach buddies eating sandwiches buddies well if george had left the beatles in 1965 he and paul would have been best buddies for the rest of their lives that's true Mm, yeah yeah. i think that's true yeah i know that's sad to think about isn't it that's really sad yeah i'll tell you what is a little mysterious about george's feelings though that in the 70s and late 60s, I guess, that he writes some really tender lyrics toward Paul. Um, There are several George songs that are widely attributed 
by fan consensus to be about or for Paul that show a totally different attitude than we get from George's demeanor all through Get Back or his interviews. So uh, it's hard to say. Maybe George just truly has God tier <laughs> resting bitch face <laughs> that, that obscures how he really feels. Okay, so what if George always comes off way more angry than he is? Yeah. Paul comes off way more blasé mm-hmm. than he, so he has like resting airhead face. face. Yeah, yeah, resting <laughs> angel face, <laughs> resting airhead angel face. And so they just keep misreading each other and annoying each other and getting hurt and disappointed by each other. Rinse and repeat like forever and ever. Amen. Well, I mean, how revealing is that uh, little portraiture that they did of each other in 1964 (laughs) or whatever it was? Where they're all, George and Paul drew each other and that's exactly what it looks like. That is. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like Paul's portrait of George is angry. Uh huh. Paul, uh-huh. the portrait of <laughs> the George Nelson Paul is like, hey, like is it completely oblivious and like yes, like a cartoon, yeah, like Roadrunner, Mimi. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. to read into those portraits. That's basically exactly what it is. Like, uh, really, it's <laughs> George comes off more angry. Paul comes off more blasé, and like that's it yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and negativity annoys Paul and yes. blithe yeah. ignoring of every of everything negative. Yeah. Annoys <laughs> yeah. George. Yes. <laughs> Pretending everything's great is bullshit in George's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And they're both they're both right. But they, the are. <laughs> they are. They are both right and they are both annoying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes collectively like all of us underestimate how hard it is to express your hurt feelings to your friends yeah and and your family and to really be vulnerable to to the people who hurt us Mm. um and i'm not saying that judgmentally at all like i'm saying that empathetically like in some ways the closer you are to people the harder it is to tell them sure yeah Well, well you're kind of giving them the perfect opportunity to hurt you a million times more than they already have like if you yeah. tell them and they dismiss it mm. yeah then that's worse than just suffering in silence yeah talking about your vulnerable feelings with another person is like one of the hardest things that people can do yeah when you know that the only way that that person could react that would make you feel better is for them to change Mm. and it's hard for people to change yeah or just like the confrontation of the problem itself is going to be upsetting to you both yes you have to commit to upsetting both of you and having bad Mm. feelings up front if you're ever going to get past it yeah with no guarantee that it'll turn out well maybe maybe you'll lose the friendship or damage it forever yes maybe it'll just be worse yeah (laughs) it's Mm. much more attractive to just let it go and just kind of hope it goes away especially when you're trying to get a a massive project done or drop hints oh yeah legally yeah morning morning, rich how are you this morning i haven't heard enough people talking about ringo yeah ringo yeah. ringo is kind of like the secret star of this movie he's love, the secret star of the beatles 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> Ringo is so sweet with everybody, but he's really sweet with Paul. And it was just one of the things that stood out to me the most. Mm-hmm. And they seem super close. And I just feel like their relationship doesn't get enough attention in Beetledom, mm-hmm. like as musicians and as friends. Mm-hmm. I also loved the part where Linda talked about how Ringo was the one she felt the most comfortable around and who she could relax with. And <laughs> yeah, it just makes me think that maybe they were spending a fair amount of time as a couple with Ringo and Mo outside mm-hmm. of work. Well, it's well, easy to see why she would feel that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's was definitely slick. not going to be John. She's most comfortable. <laughs> oh my God. If I had like someone I was interested in, and their creative partner was staring daggers and like glaring at me every time I was around, I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> well, I know, but we don't see any of that in Get Back. Yeah, that's true. Having said that, there's no interaction between them at all. Like not even, oh, no, no. they don't even make eye contact. He yeah, never really says don't. hello to her. Yeah, mm. that's true. And what oh, was I yeah. guessing, uh, Phoebe, like that part where he has his head in his hands? When they're like listening to playback and yeah. like Paul's playing with Heather. Yeah, I had not mm-hmm. noticed that until you pointed that out. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, look, maybe John just happened to have a migraine at that time or something. Right. Sure. Know, yeah. But, sure yeah. yeah. There's something very warm um, and genuine about how Ringo interacts with Linda and Paul as a couple too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he loves all three of them and that's very apparent and he's the most tactile of all of them too he's the most affectionate physically with the other guys Mm -hmm. i think they all like the three of them in their trio things were so heavy and intense between them in both positive and negative ways that i think there was a lightness not like a superficial lightness but like they just felt very comfortable and like they could really be themselves with ringo which which trio what do you mean John Paul George trio. Mm, Yeah. I feel like the three of them do have like a competitiveness undercurrent. Yeah. 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 And there's none of that. Yep. Yeah. And there's none of that. Yeah. And it's not because Ringo's not an equal musically or he's brilliant musically. It's just that they don't go back as far. Yeah. Well, Ringo is not dissatisfied with his role in the band. That's right. That That's helps right. a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's very important. He doesn't mind taking orders from Paul. Yeah, that's, right. that's true too. Yeah. Well, and it's not even like it comes across as Paul giving him orders. No, I think it was like Paul was telling him do this, but Ringo was happy to do it. That was just my, mean, my friend's observation yeah. too. He was like, everything Paul says, George is, is taking personal and making it yeah. a thing. Paul tells Ringo to do something, Ringo just does it. And it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering if it goes back to that not having as much personal baggage going back to like their teen years. Well, and, uh, you know, when I say there's a love triangle between John, George, and Paul, let me qualify that because I see a lot of guys who think that the triangle is George and Paul competing for John's attention. No, (laughs) Paul's not competing with anyone for John's attention. No, John is inflicting his attention on Paul. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's too much sometimes. There are things that Paul needs from John, but one of the things he does not need is more attention. More attention. It's more of John's eyeballs. <laughs> that is the one thing that he is never in want of. 
or a larger <laughs> allotment of John's most tender and sweetest smiles. Oh. Can we talk about that? John it, it, beams like an angel at Paul. Have you ever seen made flesh more beautifully that lyric? of paul's thank you for the smile you know what he's oh talking my about god now. i know what he's talking mm-hmm. about now <gasps> you're right for god's sake the one thing that paul mccartney does not need even post beatles is more of john lennon's attention <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> and that's what he's getting in 1971 but yeah. anyway so yeah i think it's more that george wants john's attention but John is busy chasing Paul's attention. George tries Paul, but Paul's focused on John. And bottom line is nobody's paying enough attention to George. George, yeah. yeah. Yep. And that's why I think George ends up hating them both. Like he gets shafted in that situation every time. Oh yeah, like John and Paul always find their way back to each other. Right. Oh, they're insufferable, yeah. They, they yeah. are the worst. They <laughs> are the worst. The worst. <laughs> it's just an unfortunate dynamic that developed over a period of years and that George now feels left out and unloved a little bit. Why Paul bears the brunt of the blame. And this kind of touches on what we talked about a little bit in the last episode where Paul becomes kind of an emotional scapegoat for George in terms of like representing everything negative about fame. I think for a while in the later years like 65 through 69 let's say when john and george started doing acid it was very important for george not just because it finally gave him something with john that paul wasn't a part of although definitely think that was an important part of it but also lsd is famous for having the effect of expanding a person's consciousness in regards to our place in the universe and the interconnectedness between people. And I mean, this, that same awareness can be achieved through studying philosophy or physics or religion, or even just looking up at the stars and the constellations, even just thinking deeply, really, you know, a common way to foster that kind of awareness is spending reflective time in nature which we know paul did voluntarily as a child often and we also know thanks to julian lennon that that paul would sometimes guide him on like little naturalist walks and and show julian how to observe nature and be present and and things like that point being you certainly don't have to do drugs to achieve these revelations about humanity and consciousness and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, LSD is like a, like a fast, vivid and shocking way to receive a lot of information and, and deep thoughts, like, like shoving a bunch of philosophy into a crack pipe, right? <laughs> which by the way, you could see why that would be super overwhelming to somebody like Paul, mm. not in a cool way. You know, I can definitely see why that would not appeal to him because it is it's very overwhelming. And if you have a brain that's overactive to begin with, that's going to feel kind of smothering. 
it's also, you know, a really transformative experience. So I totally believe that it bonded John and George, um, especially because they were on the cutting edge of it, at least, you know, from a recreational standpoint, it was, it was brand new in the mid sixties when they tried it. And because they had that experience together, George could trust that John shared in his knowledge and beliefs and would feel seen by John in a way that he just didn't feel seen by Paul. Yeah. Maybe he would feel secure because of those asset experiences that he knew and he felt the real John, even if the in-person John, you know, the famous guy, John Lennon, fell back into old bullying behaviors on occasion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you feel like those barriers were down and you've gotten the essence of the person, then yeah, you can kind of forgive anything that comes along later because like you've, you've seen them and known them in that that kind of vulnerable open time. Exactly. And I also just think that John would be more receptive in general to George's rants about fame and stardom. Mm-hmm. Not that Paul would necessarily disagree and be like, no, fame is awesome and there's no drawbacks. But <laughs> I feel like John would be more interested in having that conversation and he mm-hmm. would more readily agree and like it just appeared to get it like john wouldn't push back on any of that if george is positioning paul more as like the enemy or like the the guy who loves fame you know mm-hmm. it's gonna put paul mm-hmm. in a defensive position so that's true this reminds me of an excerpt from the anthology interviews where paul and george are looking at photos and they come across this photo of this one young woman like from the 60s and mm-hmm. george looks at it and he's like oh her do you remember oh she was awful and Paul was kind of like oh no she wasn't she was fine I don't even know what they were taught like in bed who the fuck knows yeah 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 (laughs) anyway so that that actually rings pretty true like (laughs) and on the and I see both their points it's like from Paul's point of view it's like why are we using our time to bash some nameless person and george is like can you just agree that she's terrible yeah Yeah. Yeah. i was trying to like you know bond here a little bit about so yeah i can definitely see that like why do you have to disagree yes yes like it was sort of like paul was chiding george for you know like george don't be so negative yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. yeah. paul can you just admit sometimes that people suck (laughs) (laughs) you can admit about alan klein gotta give him that yeah, so maybe this is partly why, regardless of John's sort of shitty, condescending, rank-pulling behavior in the following years, George is still willing to give John a pass because he he has that foundation with him. John had time for George in the mid-60s when Paul didn't. Paul was mm-hmm. out being Mr. Big Shot in London and coming up with Sergeant Pepper, and he was too good for the suburbs. George was cultivating a relationship with John in those years. And John was receptive to it. And I think that bond meant a lot to George. Whereas Paul and George, their their bonding occurred much earlier in their lives. And then towards the end, when George has built up so many resentments and conflicted feelings, when George rejects the Beatles, I think there's still an issue of sunk cost. Meaning he can't throw everything away. He, he has to be able to salvage something from the experience or else his whole life's been a waste and mm. nobody can live with that. Like everybody does that. Yeah. 
pick out something that you say, well, that part was good, but the rest of it was, was awful. And I'm turning my back on it. So what I think is that George holds on to his relationship with John for whatever reason, either because he just values it more. He just loves John more Mm -hmm. or my candid opinion. It's not because George thinks that John is a more reliable friend or that he trusts John more, but he chooses John anyway, because he's not willing to forfeit his Beatles family completely, but he wants to reject Lennon McCartney. And he, for whatever reason, feels like he can afford to reject Paul, but he can't afford to reject John. Mm. Mm. Well, like you and Daphne were saying earlier, though, George does seem to have some tender lyrics that seem aimed at Paul. It's possible he did feel angry enough at Paul to reject him entirely at times, but he also seems to miss Paul's friendship. Mm-hmm. For example, he said in 1976 to the NME, I haven't seen Paul since his party on the Queen Elizabeth a few years back. That's the only time you can see him anyway when he's having a party. Who wants to be invited to a party of Paul's and find yourself another statistic in a pop paper? I don't want to meet an old friend like that. George is talking about the Venus and Mars launch, which was in 1975 on the Queen Mary. So it hadn't been years since you'd seen him, but he does <laughs> seem to miss seeing him in parties that aren't large gatherings. And they did wind up resuming their friendship. As someone said on social media, George and Paul seem to have a familial, if not always friendly, closeness to their private relationship. Another thing that's interesting to me is that George could certainly be critical of Paul in public, but I don't think he felt that would necessarily jeopardize his relationship with Paul. It's actually really easy for people to be critical of Paul in public without obvious consequences. Mm. Jane Asher, Mike McCartney, George Martin have all said things in print about how Paul hurt them or wasn't pleasant to be around. Uh, And he didn't lash out at them publicly or sever ties with them. For whatever reason, it seems like it's safe to criticize Paul publicly. I feel like it's much less safe for George to side against John or air his dirty John laundry. Because, uh, you know, as we know, John wasn't shy about lashing out publicly. if he had an an issue with you, even if it was an issue he had with you in the five seconds it took him to have an issue with you, (laughs) quickly the issue was gone. (laughs) He would still have said it publicly to Rolling Stone or whoever. And he would retaliate too. Yeah, and he'd retaliate. A lot of people love to call Paul a coward for not hitting back at John after How Do You Sleep, but who are these big tough guys who took swings at John in public? (laughs) Who are they? (laughs) See, I'd watch an hour of him just playing the piano. Me too. So great. So Ringo comes across as being really supportive of everyone, but in Get Back especially, he's really giving Paul a lot of extra TLC and affection. Yes. Paul is very receptive to that and really seems to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And I just really have to wonder, like, obviously there's some kind of behind the scenes that we don't really know, we're not privy to. Something happened between John and Paul. Their relationship changed like overnight. And I just wonder how many details Ringo might have been privy to or actually knew about. Well, we mentioned in Peace and Fairy Tales, John and Ringo were pretty close throughout the 70s, too. Oh, God. 
So if he didn't know everything at that point, at some point he knew, he knew. you know, like he got an earful, I'm sure. Because if Harry Nilsson knows, yeah, Ringo knows. Yeah, seriously. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and if that's the case, if Ringo knows at this point and is being extra soft with Paul, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. what I was thinking. Well, especially because George seems to like whatever george knows he's a hundred percent on john's side which is very interesting yes it's almost like he inherited some of that anger on on john's behalf yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i see that i mean we're kind of filling in the blanks here like we don't yeah it's total speculation yeah 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 i mean i think ringo and paul were always close they always have a really good vibe they're like rhythm section soulmates as i yes i love that Paul does need support. I mean, Ringo's oh, yeah. given him a lot of support being there and just yeah, being present with him. Yeah. It's not even like he's showering him with, oh, you're the greatest. You're the best songwriter ever, boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's not kissing his ass. He's being genuinely yes. complimentary. Yep. When you are stuck for a long time doing thankless work and you're like relatively adept at it too, people kind of take you for granted. Yeah. And yep. You know, he of said course. that the guys had trouble paying each other compliments. And I'm, I'd like to say, except for Ringo. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be. Yeah. There are a couple of moments where the other guys say like, hey, I really dig that. Or I really like that. Or, you know, yeah, like, yeah. to each other. They do. Yeah. they do. It's just they weren't showering each other in compliments all the time. Well, but who does like, that? Yeah. Women yeah. do that. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> Ringo was also just like physically supportive to Paul. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like sitting next to him a lot of the time mm-hmm. touching yeah. him petting him yes yeah. nuzzling him at one point. yes yeah. Like, yeah he came up and like nuzzled him from behind while he was playing guitar <laughs> that was so cute john and paul for whatever reason can't do that anymore they did not touch each other once except for the except little when they awkward, danced yeah on the oh, little awkward yeah, group yeah, hug yeah. Uh, when oh, john left hug. Yeah. yeah that's true but it was more like a group grab and head nuzzle a hug. yeah <laughs> which is kind of more intimate but yeah it is guys yeah. it was a huddle yeah it was like a, it was a they huddle. were talking about their strategy yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's the quarterback though? That's the important Even though like poor yoko she's I know. I feel a spare dick <laughs> i would never i there's no way i would ever tolerate that nonsense oh my god i wouldn't go to the studio i'd be like you go to the studio that's your band yeah why don't you sit and make googly eyes at paul while i sit next to you getting ignored and everyone hates me and films me looking bored that sounds great (sighs) why did she do it i don't know (laughs) oh Hare krishna yeah those people harry who Hare krishna Uh, you like india no not really so yeah, you guys remember when Michael Lindsay Hogg asks Ringo, so do you like India? And Ringo replies, <laughs> no, not, not really. really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in kind of a wistful tone, I don't know if wistful is the right, kind of defeated. I don't know. Defeated, yeah. That, yeah, I was like, that nah, was... not really. And I just wonder what's layered into that response. <laughs> like the surface level take is the traditional, I don't like India because Mo and I were physically uncomfortable there. and We had a newborn at home. So what's your deeper read of of the comment? Well, I think he doesn't like it because the aftermath of what happened there on their interpersonal relationships, particularly between John and Paul, 
the mm-hmm. estrangement between them and John leaving Cynthia and Julian. Like that's, yeah. that's a thing that doesn't really get talked about a lot, but that had a major impact on their social group, you know, like a huge part yeah. of the fabric of their kind of extended family beyond the foursome was Cynthia and Julian. Cynthia had been with him since before they got famous and she was like a major yeah since Ringo joined the band yes and they were all friends with each other outside of the work relationship that's a weird thing and recently Ringo said the big relationship in that band was John and Paul yep Yep. that's true how would you describe the relationships within the band well uh big relationship of course with our writers john and paul and so when he comes back and he sees that god bless ringo oh my god i'm so glad he said that (laughs) like right lord but yeah i think it's just they went on that trip with the intention of bettering themselves and they came back worse it's sad it's nobody's fault it just happened no No, but they all agree they all agree that that's nothing was the same after that He loved all three of them, but I think he really sensed that Paul needed him more. Yep. But also that maybe him and Paul were a lot closer than we have been led to believe for the time they were together in the Beatles. It's it's not even like anyone's led us to believe they weren't close. It's just like right. nobody's cared. Nobody's paid any attention, Good point. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's not some yeah, nefarious agenda to make us think that Paul and Ringo aren't close. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> As if he's not an important part. The social relationships between him and the other guys are never explored. Well, there there is that quote in the 80s where Paul is talking about Ringo and he says, oh, yeah, like they, they, they're they in the bathroom together or something and, and oh, Ringo yeah. says, oh, yeah, that's the, the time you got me when he delivered the letter in 70 and paul flipped out through him out yeah yeah. and he seems to be really upset about like that seemed to be like crossing a line i see it from ringo's point of view where he's like hey man i was just the messenger exactly i didn't do this i was trying to be nice they wanted to send it via courier don't turn this shit on me i understand that point of view but at the same time he has to understand what it felt like for paul yeah well and then paul said something really kind of unforgivable well that's That's what i wonder i'm like we we weren't there so maybe like in the court records he said paul stuck his finger in my face and he said i'll end you or something like that like i'll finish you you'll pay (laughs) (laughs) which is hilarious (laughs) well maybe ringo was so scarred by i'll finish you um (laughs) and the finger wagging because he and paul had always been close and Mm lovey-dovey so it was like he had a big departure yeah plus i think just in general people assume that paul means what he says 
Mm. <laughs> so if yeah. so if he does say something mean, then oh, that's what he really thinks. Yeah, yeah that mm. could be. You know? Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Versus yeah, versus John being easy to forgive because he says mean things all the time. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but doesn't mean them. You know I don't mean them. Yeah, that's uh, true, actually. Yeah. People who don't explode or who keep it bottled in and then they explode, you, you Yeah. It's like, natural to assume, oh, that's sure. what they that's how they really feel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether or not that's true. Right. And I was also thinking about Ringo's comment about not liking India. And mm. I feel like that really shows how important his very kind but also very frank temperament was to their group dynamic Mm. as a counterbalance to the more volatile personalities Mm. of John and (laughs) George and Paul yeah because I totally think Ringo could and maybe did say to George I didn't really like India very much I feel like he could have said that to George's face without upsetting or offending George because George trusts Ringo not to like have an agenda or be looking to catch him out or being passive aggressive or whatever yeah that's that's really important to have in a group and bottom line is Ringo's entitled to feel however he wants to feel about it yeah sure hold a grudge against Paul if he feels like it yeah I mean point of this conversation is not to determine whether or not he should feel that way we're just kind of trying to get to the bottom of things a little bit yeah of course yeah Ringo seems pretty repentant. He just kind of acknowledges Paul was right about things. And it is an interesting thought to think maybe Ringo felt that he was deserving of some absolution from Paul. It's like, I was just kind of caught up in this. And, you know, I thought if I went along with them, you'd come along too. But my thought is after seeing them be so affectionate with each other Mm -hmm. and Ringo be so supportive of Linda and Paul as a couple, it makes it even more heartbreaking when he sides with the others when mm-hmm. he goes with Klein later. Yeah. Um, I can see how Paul felt because Ringo chose to be kind of passive and go with the flow in a moment where it actually could have been helpful for the band for him to back Paul up, at least in terms of not going with Alan Klein. Yeah, it doesn't have like, to be the Eastmans. It can yeah. be just, you know, somebody else, another option. Yeah, third option. Um, and if Ringo had been the one to defect, it might have shook the other two and be like, oh, 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 maybe we should think about this. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you've got two on one side and two on the other. Then you've got a little bit more of room to have a conversation about this and rehash it. Paul just wanted somebody to back him. And I think he was probably expecting Ringo to. Yeah. Well, it makes more sense of that story. Ringo's over at at, uh, Paul and Linda's and he tells them he's going with Klein and Linda starts crying and she's like, oh no, they've got you too. Yeah. It must have felt like a nail in the coffin to Paul. And I think on Ringo's part, passive is the right way to put it because Ringo probably looked at it as he has two options, Klein or Eastman, which is which is not the case. And I it yeah. really frustrates me that people still constantly frame it that way. <sighs> me too. Yeah. It is not the reality. But but it's just not. But Ringo obviously was not about to go researching and recruiting and vetting new managers. Like it Yeah, you know, that wasn't his forte. He's yeah. not gonna do that. He's gonna look at it as it's Klein or what? You know, he doesn't yeah. have another option. So I really just think he thought, well, okay, let's give Klein a shot because he 
did this good deal for us and he might not be that bad and eventually paul will come around and also probably john and george were convincing him that that's the case oh yeah yeah that's i'm sure true. they were yeah. putting that bug in his ear like oh he'll definitely come over with us if you do it people make it out to be like paul was delusional why in the world would Paul ever assume that Ringo would side with him with the Eastmans, you know? Well, it's not that insane. And now it's popular to give Klein credit for being a good manager by saying like, actually, he got the Beatles a really great deal, ignoring the malfeasance. So like, yeah, besides- <laughs> He did one thing competently. Yes, I understand that that was the magic trick that he performed that got them to yeah. go along with it, but it doesn't make him a good manager. Sure, besides the embezzlement and the bullying and the pitting the bandmates against one another, <laughs> weaponizing John's anti-Semitism against the Eastmans, the smear campaign- against one of the Beatles, you know, <laughs> that he was trying to manage yeah. and contributing lyrics to how do you sleep? Like, yeah, besides all of that, <laughs> he was a terrific guy. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really important to look too at how Ringo was always affectionate toward Paul, even at the worst of things, even when John was busy writing, how do you sleep? So, Felix Dennis, a reporter from Oz Magazine, was there at those rehearsals, and he talks about how Ringo was unhappy with the song and tried to rein John in and told him it was going too far, and that some of the original lyrics were so much more brutal than what was released, and he really <laughs> felt, right, that the credit should go to Ringo for telling John that it was too much, so he's defending Paul even then. There's also a Playboy interview in 1971. It's mostly with Klein, but Ringo is also there because they're together on the set of this movie called Blind Man. And Klein's asked about the possibility of the Beatles playing together in the future because he's still considered the Beatles manager. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ringo tells him, Alan, you must say yes, because there's no reason we shouldn't all play together again if we want to. And then the journalist writes, Ringo talked about his first face-to-face -face meeting with Paul in many months on a plane on the way to Mick Jagger's wedding in May, 1971, and then said, I love Paul, you know, I really do. The drummer's eyes were moist. That's the only use of moist I'll accept. <laughs> in his 2019 book, Another Day in the Life, Ringo says, Paul is my favorite musician. He plays great and is so supportive. I have other bass players on my records too. And I say to each of them, you're my second favorite bass player. The reason I wanted to highlight this quote is that Ringo says that Paul is so supportive. Ringo also expresses his insecurity in terms of his friendship with Paul in his song from the Ringo album, early 1970, where um, within the verse where he sings about Paul, he says, I wonder if he'll play with me. Whereas with the other guys, he indicates that they will play with him. Right. And so Ringo's wondering if Paul will play with him. I also heard an audio interview with Ringo that I don't know the source of, but it's in the Beatles anthology Revisited. I was feeling insecure about Paul at that time. Oh, mm. which is sad. I think the three against one narrative is powerful and difficult to break away from. And maybe that's because it provides an easy explanation for what went wrong. 
Another thing that has been folded into this Paul was the problem child of the Beatles narrative is the idea that he was alienating his bandmates with egomaniac and diva behavior. An example of how this has been retrofit to support this narrative is the way that fans have begun to blame Paul for Ringo's quitting in 1968. There apparently was at least one day when Ringo came home from the studio during the Wine album complaining about Paul because Maureen gave an interview later where she recounts that one day he came home and he said, Paul's a fucking moron. She used freaking, but I think in one, one interview she said fucking. But from Ringo's point of view, at least, that wasn't the cause of his walkout. On the Howard Stern Show in 2000, Ringo was asked about this and he explicitly denied it. A couple of weeks I'd left the Beatles because I couldn't take it anymore. Really? I can't imagine He was the first Beatle to quit, actually. Ringo, why couldn't you take it? Seriously. Well, because it just wasn't working. Paul was telling about to play drums on back in the USSR. Hey, Vinny, could you let Ringo answer that, please? Oh, my God. I never really care about that. Yeah. What do you mean? Paul was telling you how to play drums? No. He, he has, but he was, that wasn't the reason. I don't care what this guy says. Thank you. <laughs> I just felt um, it wasn't working out, and I left and uh, was on this boat. Well, when you say it wasn't working was out, you're, fun you're part of the greatest group yeah, in history. It wasn't happening for me. and I thought, Musically? I thought those three were really friendly, and I wasn't in the group anymore. And I went knocking on, first of all, to, uh, to John, who was staying at my place. And I said, oh, you three are really getting on. I feel like it's not working for me. And he said, I thought it was you three. <laughs> really? Then I went to Paul and I said, well, you three are really getting on. I feel out of it. And he said, I thought it was you three. So I said, well, I'm going on holiday. Wow. Yeah, because why would Paul McCartney, after all the years, start telling you how to play the goddamn yeah. drums? Paul wanted a certain drum pattern. That was all. Yeah. But that wasn't it. I mean, you know. That wasn't the thing that drove you away. Yeah. It was a lot more than that. Next question. His tone is very adamant. It doesn't sound like he's just being diplomatic or like he's hedging. Like he's he's adamant that that is not the case. Yeah. Paul's a moron is just like. It's hardly offensive. And it well, it makes it sound also that like Paul was being clueless. Like he was being a dick, but he was being clueless about what a dick he was being. Mm. True true it's not like he was being cruel or anything no and that's what yeah. we're probably yeah. pointing out in episode two with like the the george stuff and if he was and even in that norman smith thing it's like paul would say like oh you know not quite like this right like that isn't being mean like it might be very right. annoying and, and undermining right. confidence but it's not being cruel yeah. or mean and there um, is a yeah. difference and it's okay to talk about those differences and it got me thinking maybe when we hear the others describe Paul as insensitive. We're assuming that that means kind of musically, like in the studio, but maybe it's a little more interpersonal because again, their love is so strong that maybe they felt a little slighted sometimes by Paul because he didn't move out to the suburbs with him. Like that has nothing to do with yeah. music. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just the Beatles being crazy, crazy close. And John and George would never put that into words. Like we said earlier, Ringo is the only one who's like strong enough to admit to feeling insecure about the other's love. Mm -hmm. So maybe as a fandom, we miss that love element Mm. and get back. Even though Ringo is super physically affectionate with Paul, Paul doesn't reciprocate or initiate. And that doesn't bother Ringo. Like it just seems like that's probably their normal thing. And 
I think Paul appreciates that physical. Like, I don't think he dislikes yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. I just, I just yeah. think he's physically feels physically like wired a lot. Yeah. It's like <laughs> trying to hug a really hyper puppy. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so full of energy that he, he just kind of wants to, he wants to do the project. Like that's. He does. Well, and he's his... constant. He's constantly stimming. I honestly think that Ringo knows that, you know, okay, this puppy is is vibrating <laughs> yeah. out of its skin but if i pet it right it will calm him i'm like a weighted blanket right now for that's right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Ringo is the ultimate weighted blanket so yes paul could be annoying and or insensitive in the studio nobody's denying that but um it's not the only thing that ever happened in the beatles it's not the, <laughs> uh, the you know all-purpose answer for everything that like their only problem that they ever had uh, more to the point i think what we're trying to say is that any conflicts involving paul have been emphasized and exaggerated over the years mm-hmm. um you know they were specifically in the lawsuit for strategic legal reasons and you know any conflicts between the other band members were similarly downplayed and they have been you know they've continued to be throughout throughout the history now but tony bramwell for example i mean however reliable you find him to be tony bramwell insists that john and george were always the most argument inclined pair in the band that they butted heads the most and i think one of them either john or george admitted to a fight once isn't it in the anthology uh yeah lewison wrote about it too he says it took place in hamburg and this is what he writes it happened in chugao when they were worn out from playing another six hours george's response to one of john's pointed barbs was to pick up his plate of food and tip it over john's head and then john did the same and the footnote makes things even more interesting because it shows that George told them the story about them dumping food on one another shortly after there had been a newspaper report about his fight with John during Get Back. Uh, the quote from Lewison is, George mentioned the squabble in an interview by David Wig from Seen and Heard BBC Radio 1 on the 4th of March, 1969. So I'm wondering, was he thinking he needed to do damage control because of the article? Yeah, like that's why he brought up the, the, yeah. the Chinese food. Yeah, we didn't punch each other yesterday. We threw food at each other ten in years in 1960. Let's yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 it was a food fight story. Yeah, <laughs> we had a food fight like ninth graders in the cafeteria. <laughs> it was cute. It was funny. So regarding that supposed John and George fight, we've got conflicting accounts. So what do we think about that? Well, in his, with a little help from my friends, The Making of Sergeant Pepper, published in 1994, George Martin writes, quote, unfortunately for him, George was a few crucially spotty years younger than John. Perhaps because of this age difference, John was condescending towards George in those early days, and this was still apparent when I first met them all. Later on, this uneasiness seemed to evaporate as the business of being a professional beetle took over. Some undercurrent between the two men may yet have remained to the very end, though. The only people who came to actual blows with one another on Let It Be were John and George. Mm. You know, he published this several times and nobody denied it. And so while George Mm. Martin may not have actually seen the punch up, 
An engineer in Kenneth Womack's Sound Pictures describes him as just arriving as George is storming off. The book goes on to say, while the bandmates would later claim that Lennon and Harrison had fought a war of words rather than engaging in fisticuffs that day, Martin knew otherwise, maintaining that, quote, there was actually a punch up, end quote. And the citation for that is George Martin's book, Playback. George Martin also told Philip Norman that John and George, quote, came to blows and that it was, quote, uh, hushed up afterwards, end quote. Hmm. That's interesting. So it could be that George Martin was in a loop and kind of got the wrong end of the stick, or maybe he's right and the only one telling the real story. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's insistent. I mean, he repeats this several times. And in two of those cases, he has control of the narrative. So it's not like a misquote or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Philip Norman is like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Extrapolating. To, yeah. Or, or, or yeah. pulling something in out of context. I mean, he wrote playback and he yeah. wrote the making of Sergeant Pepper. And if he really didn't want that in there, he could have cut it. And the other Beatles, especially because George was still alive when Sergeant Pepper came out, could have said, oh, no, you know, like I object to this. So it wouldn't be in the book in the first place. Or they could have said later on, oh, yeah, you know, George got the wrong end of the stick uh, when he wrote the book. Yeah, you don't really write and publish twice that there was a cover up about something unless you're sure. Well, that's that's that was my thought. Maybe it's such a small thing. That he doesn't yeah. he doesn't think he, he's like cracking open like a big conspiracy <laughs> here or whatever. A big he's skeleton. Like, uh, yeah. He's like, oh PS, you know, <laughs> by the way, that was bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and because it no longer matters, really, right? Like the damage exactly. Exactly. like the band's broken up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like way worse shit goes down after that. Uh, it makes sense that there was a real fight, but that it kind of cleared the air a little bit too. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that's my interpretation sometimes that's what you need yeah and it shouldn't be scandalous that they had a fight like why why is there a cover-up about that so so what who cares i think it's because it was alleged that it got physical why though who why like okay so let me push back a little bit because i am the love police um (laughs) (laughs) so if the beatles are more like a family who loved each other to bits You'd think maybe they would be especially eager to keep conflicts and disputes private. Like, I would definitely not want a million strangers ever knowing or talking about like the fights I have with people I love <laughs> most in the world, whether or not they happened. I'd hate people yeah. to ever think I'd yeah. hit a loved one, which I never have. <laughs> I never would, by the way. But I- I'd go on the radio, too. Like, fuck the public. They don't deserve to know. I guess. And maybe. But, I mean, you're talking about a guy who was like, I don't regret anything. Even Bob Wooler. Like, John was. true. And John was like, yeah, I beat the shit out of women. And and that was a mistake. You know what I mean? Like, he's. That's totally true. Yeah. But it's George. So it's different. But it's okay to hate Yoko or Cynthia. Like, that's weird. I, I kind of get your point. <laughs> Bitches ain't shit, as we discussed earlier. Yeah, right? <laughs> we but only hitting George Harrison, but we love yeah. George Harrison. Just That's take at it. At the time, maybe um, just it would just be a big PR concern. And like the, the worry would be that the band was breaking up. George was still addressing this and denying it on the radio in March of 69. And in the Beatles on the roof, 
by Tony Barrel. He's describing how fans are disappointed they weren't getting a TV special like they thought. So the Beatles book monthly had said there would be a TV special with a live concert component and over 20,000 fans had written in already asking for tickets. Um, so when they heard that there wasn't going to be a live TV concert special, they were disappointed. And some wrote into the Beatles book monthly and said, quote, we have just heard that your long awaited live concert appearance has been scrapped for good. Just how much are faithful Beatle fans supposed to take? <laughs> we thought we were getting compensation for waiting so long oh, for your third geez. film, which still hasn't started yet. So you've got kind of rumors of this physical fight between John and George. Um, this TV special isn't coming. Fans are disappointed. Um, on top of all this, John is talking about how they don't have any money. I think they were worried that the physical fight story was bad for fan perception and Beatle business. Like we've got a fight, no money, no TV show. Yeah, yeah. None of this is good. <laughs> so. That's true. Yeah, drugs, divorce, and a slipping image. well that gives it a little more context i guess i could understand it there so if fans are upset that they didn't make a tv show and so then they're looking for a reason to blame it then they can spin this whole fight into Mm -hmm. a big Mm -hmm. thing sure like the jesus remark like the lsd ambition all of that stuff just mm-hmm. snowballs in their experience or, although it's it's really interesting the idea the fact that fans are upset about them missing their deadline for their show or whatever it's like oh <laughs> one of those imaginary consequences for them failing at this project that paul yeah. made up <laughs> there are no stakes So let's discuss that infamous scene and get back. The one where they have the cryptic conversation about India that people have had all kinds of wild takes on. (laughs) Well, it's a pretty wild scene. It is a very wild scene. (laughs) It is weird, wild stuff. First of all, can we have a quick discussion about the editing? What the... What the fuck? What was that? <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen Let It Be. You guys have seen Let It Be, right? Mm-hmm. Part of this conversation is in Let It Be. Bizarrely, it is intercut with footage of John from a completely different day, which is strange. I'm, I really, I have a lot of questions about Michael Lindsay Hogg's film because <laughs> no, like, <laughs> knowing that they have this much film and that Peter Jackson was able to reconstruct everything. Mm-hmm. I just have so many questions, but um this is what john actually says i don't regret anything even bob wooler yeah and we know why that was cut not a good look no but in peter jackson's film they cut john saying i don't regret anything and then deep throating a microphone while making (laughs) hard eye contact with paul yeah what the what was that you just told me that they had oral sex. I mean, that's yeah. what you just told me with your mm-hmm. end. When I was watching that, I was like, whoa, what? Okay, I guess that mystery is solved. Yeah. And then I had to go back and go, wait a second, that didn't even happen. But that was just editing. Why yeah. would you do that? <laughs> Why would you do that? It was some kind of choice. Yep. Is it 
possible? My experiences on the internet would say yes. For someone to look at that footage and not think that that's what John's doing, to think that he's just pretending to eat the microphone. No, he's definitely pretending to give a microphone a blowjob. Give a blowjob. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. And it's it's not even it's not even just wrapping his lips around the head of the microphone. It's no, wrapping it's like, his lips around the head of the microphone, moving his moving mouth his back and forth, back and, and forth, then the yeah. hard eye contact. That's unmistakable. We know what that means. <laughs> like, yeah, I, come, let's stop it. Stop. Now, why he's doing that is a mystery. And, and apparently when he's doing it is left a mystery because he didn't do that wh- while he was saying, I don't regret anything. Why would you cut it to imply that? That's yeah. bizarre's choice. He, Peter Jackson has, has a theory. It's still weird that he did it. But the funniest thing is that Paul just like keeps talking while he's <laughs> like, Paul's totally unfazed. <laughs> yeah <laughs> he just talks right the fuck over him yeah. like john always makes eye contact with me while filleting things that's just yeah. something that that's he just... does i don't even know what you're talking about why what's weird about that i hardly notice it anymore it's like the uh, then there were two footage paul does at some point look off in the distance like he's gonna cry john mm-hmm. does in fact deep throw a microphone mm-hmm. breathe heavily on it wobble his head around make make sure uh, to get it in the cheek yes exactly exactly (laughs) like he he very explicitly i'm just recalling it he gives the microphone a good fucking time like he is like he's gently implying no he's graphically implying yeah john does do that he just doesn't do it exactly in the manner that it's cut in the film right it does exist we don't know why but the editing (laughs) was very much implied something that i guess peter jackson felt was true (laughs) i don't know Uh, it was very weird okay (laughs) meanwhile poor fucking george oh my lord sitting here watching all this shenanigans that that is the the biggest joke the biggest joke to be yourselves because that was the purpose of going there to try and find oh, yeah. who yourself it really is. Yeah, well, we found that, didn't we? And if you were really yourself, you wouldn't be any of who we are now. Mm. <laughs> or act naturally, then. If you had really been yourselves, you wouldn't be any of who we are now. Mm. Which is, a you know, maybe he's just messing up his, like, pronouns a little bit, because that's a weird... But it definitely sounds say. like he's saying we wouldn't be where we are now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he's not just saying you you morons would be better off Different. if you weren't such big phonies. Like he's definitely saying, and your phoniness is affecting all of yes. us here. Yes, yes, exactly. So it, obviously it's extremely loaded. George is really not having it. Like he's really upset. So in this conversation they're talking about india uh paul's basically saying like yeah that wasn't all it was cracked up to be he's kind of apologizing he is he is a little sheepish about their time in india yeah. he's like that wasn't the real beatles or we should have done better 
but I think George is like, fuck you, man. It was the yeah. real me. It wasn't mm-hmm. the real you, maybe, but it was the real me. So don't don't the all the Beatles. In. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which which is fair. Which is definitely fair. He's like and you Paul don't does that all the me. time. He yeah. does. He does. We yeah, when he means I. Yes, and George is like, speak yeah. for yourself, asshole. Yeah. Like I had yeah. a great time. I'd go back. If you didn't. That's on you. Right. If it was just a matter of George saying, well, you know what, Paul, maybe if you'd given it a chance or you'd taken it more seriously, maybe you could have mm-hmm. gotten something out of it. That is what Paul just said, though. Just yeah. a little more blunt. And maybe that was George's problem. It's like, don't sit there and <laughs> be cute about it. Like, if you're going to admit it, don't just be like, oh, ha, ha, silly me. The strange thing is how people have seemed to, fans have seemed to come away like, oh, this is a big burn on George's part. Like he really got him there. (laughs) Yeah. Which maybe he did, but maybe he did. But if that's so, then please explain what that means. I mean, if it's just a general calling out of John and Paul for not being their true selves, that's fair. But is it fair though? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, yeah. So what are the, okay, so what are the things that he could possibly mean? So the possible meanings I have written down. If you too specifically had given spirituality and meditation specifically a real chance, we would all be better off right now. Okay. Okay. But yeah, but but, but, as you point out, this is what Paul just says. Okay. So what if it's more like, if you two weren't such big phonies generally, we would all also be less phony now yeah i don't i don't know what he's going for here the simplest explanation is honestly that george is saying if you and paul had been honest about your feelings for each other we wouldn't be in this perpetual hell of having to pretend for the cameras and everybody else that you guys don't have a thing going on and that yoko being here is completely normal and we wouldn't all be trapped in your stupid web of secrets and I wouldn't be wedged between the two of you vying for a shred of the recognition that I deserve, but you can't pull yourselves away from your own bullshit long enough to give me. Yeah, this is definitely like a, you guys are trapped in your own drama and you're not communicating. Uh, (laughs) So because you two can't just work it out, uh we're all stuck in this position yeah with all these cameras here and that would be really hard to deal with um so yeah i get where george is coming from on that one it's exactly the same as while my guitar gently weaves it's the same message Mm. like just pull it together or figure it out that's all that i can take away from it and I don't want to be, you know, like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I already have an idea of what's going on between them. So I don't just want to like slot George into my preconceived notions, but like, that's definitely what it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, even if we're not putting like, even without romance or whatever, right? it's still like a, something is going on with you two, whatever yeah. it is. And yeah. 
you can't talk about it with one another. And because you aren't doing that, potentially I can't address it directly with you either. And none of us yes. can do any of that with Michael yes. Lindsay Hogg trying to get us on like the QE2 to like go play in an amphitheater. So, yeah. Yes. And it's the unspoken thing that nobody can address directly. The longer that it stays unspoken and undealt with it, it continues to create problems and the problems get bigger and bigger and then if there's an elephant in the room eventually you start building walls around the elephant so nobody sees it hmm. you know so there's things that are now built into the structure of the beetles that are designed to obfuscate this problem like it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and I'm thinking of um, George's quote um, that I think we mentioned in the last episode, like that Paul was on a roll encompassing just his own self. I wonder <laughs> if this is related to that in some ways too. Like it wasn't related to work because I think Paul was definitely helping John with his work. George is asking Paul for input on his songs and Paul was willing to give it, except from the footage we saw, he got kind of interrupted by one of John's ideas, not in a bad way, <laughs> yeah. but John just leapt in there with the the line in something but it could be that Paul was wrapped up in his own kind of trying to like not listen to what George could see John was trying to communicate to him and so we have all this like John speaking in love songs John saying you know I love you blue all these kinds of things and so maybe from George's point of view he sees John reaching out in these ways and he just sees Paul as being totally closed off yeah 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 this, yeah because he sort of feels closer to John at this time mm -hmm. um, he's sort of picking up on that more right talking about how George definitely seems to take John's side in this Paul John situation yeah I mean because he's like I think he just got um, John better he got John's reactions better like they're yeah. on a more similar wavelength personality wise potentially yeah, well, and he's also, he also can commiserate about being hurt by Paul, too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing about that conversation is that George Harrison is calling them out for not being upfront and explicit about what the problem is, but he's also not saying what it is. There's such a code of silence. It just shrouds everything in shame and secrecy yeah. yeah and i think that that's a good way to describe it because we will probably never know what any of that was about but I, I think it makes sense to say we just don't know like we've got some possibilities um but we shouldn't just go oh well then i guess it none of this mattered <laughs> or <laughs> it's not yeah. worth talking about or it shouldn't be addressed right right um yeah and there's only really like one person who's still alive who can tell us, and that's Paul. And he'll never tell us. Yeah. Let's talk about John and Paul, a brand new topic for us that we've never discussed before. <laughs> we've never talked about them on ACOM ever. John and who? I was just really struck by how close John and Paul were, even though I know how close they are. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, 
<laughs> I completely understand what you mean. It's like, I went in thinking, boy, John and Paul have an amazing connection. They were so close to each other. They loved each other so much. They had so much chemistry. Like I knew that intellectually. <laughs> yeah. But I was not prepared for the levels of Get Back. The thing is, we've had so much material for so long that I've been desensitized to it. <laughs> and yeah. so to see all of my intellectual knowledge like made flesh mm. and colorized yeah. Yeah. yeah, on the screen, it was, mm -hmm. is, it was too much. It's just so different when you see it, when you see video yep. of it. Like, yeah. yes. but I'm sad that they didn't ever, ever, ever get a moment of time to themselves ever again. Yeah. Uh, that's heavy. But this is the only time now that John and Paul have together. Like they're mm -hmm. not going over to each other's homes to write anymore. They're not really hanging out that much outside of work. They are yeah. a little bit, but not a much. little bit. And well, and they always have their women with them. So they're, yeah. de they're definitely not like alone alone ever mm -hmm. again. No, yeah. ever again in their ever. lives. Yeah. As far as we so, know, as far as we know. <laughs> But yeah. that's a that's well, another that's reason why those phone calls are probably so special and so intimate with them because it's mm -hmm. kind of the only time they're alone moving that's forward. That's true. And I'm not saying this to like judge or shame Yoko at all. I'm just saying that she was a huge complicating factor in the relationship because even though, as we said earlier, John and Paul are definitely still writing together, they are doing it in the studio now, not alone together in their safe bubble their little cocoon together yeah, right and specifically paul's <laughs> recent comments uh in his lyrics book really brought home to me how important privacy is to paul's artistic process just having to do this in public yeah is probably setting paul on edge mm. so let me let me just read a few of those quotes because they're quite striking i think so here are three brief quotes from paul's the lyrics book if I'm writing a song in a house, I will try to get as far away from the action as possible, which often means a cupboard, a closet, or a bathroom. Mm -hmm. Then he's talking about writing a song on a boat and goes on to say, however agreeable the boat might have been, I like to go down to my cabin somewhere where no one could get to me. Mm. He's talking about hope of deliverance here. I wrote the song up in the attic of my house to get some peace and quiet to myself. Mm -hmm. It has a little ladder leading up to a trap door so that once you close it, no one else can reach you. <laughs> he also compared songwriting to sex um, and yeah. said, you know, mm -hmm. I, I like to do it in private. I'm not an orgy guy. I never have been an mm -hmm. orgy guy or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And he was he was talking about writing with John, too. Yeah. Yep. The implication definitely is that it's kind of an intimate thing that you don't want people watching, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you don't want people judging because it, yeah. you need yep. a safe space that's free from judgment if you're going to do that. And, it, and it's an intimate act that you're either doing by yourself or, or with somebody else. So this is the guy who's been forced out of his special safe cocoon with his soulmate artistic love partner. Yeah. And now has to do it not just in front of the other Beatles, which is probably not ideal, but also in front of Yoko. Yeah. She's well, always there. Yes, it is true that John and Paul wrote songs on the back of buses or they wrote them in rooms with other people and they always did that and that has been going on. 
throughout their career, but definitely I think most of their songwriting sessions tended to be private or at least, Mm -hmm. you know, where they were given a a fair amount of privacy, even if they were in the corner of a room or something like that. Like there were people bothering bothering you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to think that John and Paul alone together in the corner of a crowded room would have been far more preferable to Paul than him and yeah. John alone in an empty room, empty except <laughs> yes. for Yoko. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, sure. you know, you can, you can have a certain degree of privacy in a crowded room. They also have a history of, if, if they are songwriting within the presence of other people, John doesn't like it because mm-hmm. uh, that goes back to the Eleanor mm-hmm. Rigby situation where yeah. they're trying to write it or John believes that they're trying to write it. And Paul's like, hey guys, what do you think about this? And he's sort of crowdsourcing lyric ideas and uh-huh. John's very upset about it and continues to be upset about it for 15 years. Yeah. And as we've probably discussed at some point, maybe John was holding on to that grudge and saw Yoko partially as retribution for the hurt yep. Paul had Ooh. inflicted upon him. But even so, you know, what we learn from that is that this this feeling goes both ways and that the yeah. preferred situation for both of them is privacy. Yes. Yeah. You know, speaking of the other Beatles, I can absolutely see why this time period might have appeared to George to be the perfect time for him to get in on the Lennon McCartney mm-hmm. partnership a little bit. Because yeah. he might be looking at Yoko and thinking, well, he already has to deal with Yoko right now. So I might as well get in there too. At least Paul actually knows me. Yeah. Whereas right. Paul's point of view might've been like the absolute worst time for, for George. To- <laughs> Absolutely. But George might be saying like, oh, okay. Well, if, if it's game on now, you know, like, like if the door's open, yeah. mm-hmm. sure. I might as well get in there. If Yoko can fucking sit there and contribute nothing, I might as well be exactly. in there contributing something. Yeah. Yeah. And he also might be getting a signal from John. Like he might be interpreting that as John saying, oh, okay, well, John wants to loosen up Lennon McCartney. And so mm. if he's bringing Yoko in, then then he's not so fussy about him and Paul being alone yep. together. Yeah, sure. Which I don't, by the way, like for the record, I don't think it's that John like loosened up. And that's no. why Yoko's <laughs> there, you know. <laughs> definitely think there's some some games going on yeah Yeah. but like even if he senses there's games going on if there is a window of opportunity for him to get in there it does make sense that he'd just take that opportunity i mean he's not going to make it worse is he (laughs) he sees this as his window yeah an opportunity yeah so it makes sense that when that intimacy and that closeness between john and paul breaks down that this is also when the band breaks down they're spending less time together and you know increasingly from this point forward the time that they do spend together is on opposite sides of a table while klein and eastman are screaming at each other yeah they like they just have less Mm -hmm. time to connect with each other and love each Mm -hmm. other and trust each other so they yeah. instead they start seeing each other as adversaries mm-hmm. yeah through the whole film i just wanted to scream leave them alone let them be alone for five minutes 
another absolutely remarkable thing to me was how much John and Paul just seemed to make each other feel better. Like they're a balm to each other and they, mm. they still surprise each other. They still surprise and delight each other like newlyweds. Yeah. Yeah, that's freaky. <laughs> it is. I mean, I just, they can't be telling each other new jokes, right? They sound right. to be like permutations on old, like inside jokes, but they are reacting as if. <sighs> they like just like each other so eyes. much. Yeah, they really do. They really just like each other so much. It's <laughs> almost a little inappropriate for the workplace. I, <sighs> Just because they're so into each other to the exclusion of everyone else. It's not appropriate if they're <laughs> if they're three friends who are supposed to be doing a project together. It, like, how annoying would that be? If the yeah. three of you are trying to get something done and the two of them are just like, the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. It is a problem. And I, I honestly think that's why Yoko was brought in. Because John's like, I need you to be here to check me. Yeah. She doesn't seem to be able to, though. I mean, she doesn't really stop anything. No. Or maybe she does. Like, maybe she is stopping something. That's a terrifying thought, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, George absolutely must feel like he's just at the bottom of the heap in the band because John could do anything and Paul will, you know. John writes jibbledy jobbledy goobbledy gook and Paul's like that's amazing it's amazing <laughs> let me write the middle eight and it'll be a hit and then it is that's yeah that's the worst it actually is a oh oh man no wonder he's like anybody could be Lennon McCartney it's like <laughs> guess what I know the formula <laughs> be an idiot constantly <laughs> find somebody who tells you everything you do is genius i wonder if by get back john is maybe regretting his commitment to this bring yoko to the studio every day like maybe yeah. it, he was into it during the white album and now he's like well i don't really enjoy this anymore but i'm kind of committed i don't know i think it would be fine if she stayed home <laughs> like does she want to be there or not mm-hmm so it's it hard to be, imagine she does, but it's, it is strategically hard. right. She She's not enjoying herself, so she looks like she doesn't want to be there. But so I guess the question is like, does John not want to fall back into his bullshit with Paul? Is it like she's cock blocking, but is she cock blocking on her behalf or on John's behalf? That's I guess mm. the question. Maybe they've jointly decided like this is the best yeah. that it's not safe for him to be around Paul anymore. If he is going to, then she has to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought that for a while. It probably was a joint decision on their part. Yeah. It, it makes less sense to me that one of them is pulling the strings and doing the other's bidding. You know what I mean? Like True. I mean, they're a couple. Yeah. Well, and that's that's such a like thankless thing to do. And they get so much shit for it. That yeah, they right. Both, yeah. If one of them wasn't committed to that, I'd feel like it wouldn't happen and it's not like John like he he sort of digs his heels in but he also is definitely the kind of person who I don't think he'd be totally embarrassed by saying oh that was a phase we're we're normal now 
you know? Right, right. Because he's done it before. He goes through phases. Yeah, he admits to being a little out out there and going overboard. And then, just like Paul says, John always does go overboard. Right. No one would begrudge him that. No. Like we said in Pizza and Fairy Tales, when he splits with her, nobody says shit. No one says anything. They were like, welcome back, John. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah, totally. It's it's never the right thing to no. do to be like, I told you so about someone else's partner. No, no. It's not your place no. to say anything about her. No. Nope. Okay. So we've read in every book an article about the Beatles for the past 50 years, okay, including those published as recently as a couple years ago, that John by this point was no longer interested in Paul or the Beatles and that he was only inspired by Yoko. So far as I can tell, this this storyline was almost entirely built on John and Yoko's own public statements after the breakup. Mm -hmm. And I guess reluctantly supported by a browbeaten Paul, heartbroken Paul, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which, in retrospect, I would think seems outrageously foolish i hope everybody sees that (laughs) maybe we're coming to some type of consensus about that yeah i mean for years we've been arguing on acom and once we dream that it makes much more sense to look at john's behavior rather than his public statements so for us the john and get back was not a huge surprise it was more Mm -hmm you know confirmation the revelation Mm -hmm. we have long believed that the beatles were incredibly important to john that he cherished his partnership with paul and that his personal connection to paul was deep intense and extremely meaningful obviously his relationship with yoko was also extremely deep and meaningful but it's always framed as an either or proposition right once yoko comes along paul's out yeah As you put it, he bought a new (laughs) car. He traded his car in. Yeah. So does Get Back bear this old idea out? Does John appear exclusively interested in Yoko? And does he ignore Paul in favor of Yoko? Either intentionally or unintentionally. Never. It's not like she's taking attention away from Paul or the band. Like that piece of gum moment he's like locked into paul and she has to wave the gum in front of his face he still doesn't really notice it and then she sticks it in his hand and he's like oh thanks and pops it in his mouth and continues to ignore her yeah and yeah. she looks kind of put out to me which i would be too if i was trying to interact with my boyfriend and you know like nah, nah. and people are filming it <laughs> yes yeah it's embarrassing it is, it embarrassing. is. maybe during the scene where paul is playing strawberry fields forever that is the single yeah right (laughs) yeah when paul is like serenading him it's like the one moment where john's like true yeah because that might be a little much even for john with cameras on him and yeah yeah it's intense but no get back does not but it it blatantly refutes that idea (laughs) right yeah i think we can definitively conclude actually that that contrary to the post breakup party line john wants paul's attention Mm -hmm. well you'd think so but then on the other hand the guy that made the movie is still 
saying that John is replacing Paul with Yoko. When I saw Peter Jackson on Stephen Colbert say, oh, poor Paul, here he is witnessing John being only excited to be with Yoko. Like if Paul saw it, then we didn't see it. Did you see it? What are you talking? Is that, is this something you cut Peter Jackson? Uh-huh. It's not in your film yeah. at all. It is, yeah. It's not. What struck me is that this is in many ways a love story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Between between all of them, but mm-hmm. really between John and Paul, mm-hmm. they they clearly love each other so mm-hmm. much. Even mm-hmm. like in moments when John might be being a bit of a pill from mm-hmm. an outside observer, Paul will sn- laugh and sneak a look to the camera that looks like, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. How can you not love John? Mm-hmm. What 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 did you make of their relationship after spending these many years with them in such an intimate way? Well, I'll tell you one of the things that affected me, and I had I never even thought about it before, but the footage is there. I, I had an appreciation at how utterly painful this must have been for Paul because he's watching his closest creative collaborator, someone he's known since they were 15 or, or 16 years old, start to drift and go towards, go towards Yoko. He's, John's not pushing Paul away, but Paul's watching Yoko now become the creative collaborator John's excited about. John's still, you know... And can you imagine how painful that must be for Paul? How utterly, utterly mm-hmm. painful. He's just watching it. And and he's, okay, you know, he deals with it. He deals with it. He's trying to rationalise it. And he, you know, he loves the Beatles. He loves John. He wants to get on with it. But boy, what, what a, what? And you feel, you feel it? I, and I never, that never even occurred to me before. It's, you know, it's all about John, John and Paul sort of they hate each other. They want to talk to each other. It's all the, the negative stuff. But you just, it's actually kind of, you see this kind of thing happening. It's like, it's, it's wow. So the first reaction is just like, are you just bringing in all the old bullshit? Like you're just bringing in all the books that were written in the seventies and like, and, and just respectfully all the bullshit that John spouted after the breakup when he was hurt and embarrassed and devastated. And, you know, his feelings were trampled on and he was trying to save face and look cool and be macho. Are you really believing all of that still like you're still saying that after you cut this film like (laughs) respectfully peter jackson please check yourself and also it doesn't even make sense like how could he say it had never occurred to him that paul was in pain over losing Mm. john to yoko that's been the standard narrative since the beginning yeah i could maybe believe it if peter jackson had like a passing interest in the beatles or if he was like 30 years old or something Uh like that it would be incredibly far-fetched but it would at least be feasible sure however peter jackson is a 60 year old beatles super fan super super fan yeah so there's no way that he is totally clueless of the entire beatles mythology like he's never read a beatles book or watched anthology or sure, seen the complete or Beatles or read anything. a Paul McCartney interview. interview. Yeah. I mean, he you just know, regurgitated silly. the basis of every Beatles bio <laughs> ever written. Mm, and then claimed it was a shocking revelation to him. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is a weird quote, however you slice it. But I did hear a good counter argument from somebody who who said peter jackson doesn't believe that Mm. what he's doing is he's stating Mm. the public party line that is the party line yeah that that is contrary to what's in his film and he's 
assuming that people are smart enough to watch the movie and say, wait a second, that didn't happen. Yeah. And let other people push back on it. Like, it's not like he's not going to go out in public and refute the party line. And I think that might be true. Like that, that does kind of make sense too. It does. That makes the most sense of that to me. Yeah. States to go along with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Yoko and Sean are still very committed to that narrative. And Paul's not pushing back on it. Right. Either. So. Also the question from Stephen was, this film is a love story between John and Paul who clearly love each other so much what did you make of their relationship i guess peter can't say yeah i agree they're completely bananas for each other and i have huh? no idea what the hell happened to them your guess is as good as mine steven the scope of my film has nothing to reveal about that mystery for the ages yeah doesn't everybody want to see a love story with no resolution or explanation no, yes, none. so maybe he's also trying to like bs some sort of narrative hook to hang this dangling story on and the poor poor paul is the story that's most comfortable for everyone for a lot of reasons including the fact that poor john is just too sad and depressing for people to deal with because we know that paul you know bounced back yeah the one story that we fucking can't handle is that this isn't what john lennon wanted yeah nobody's intention is to embarrass yoko or to say that she wasn't like or that she wasn't important to john he, or, yeah exactly yeah. we're just saying like it's not an either or he didn't swap out his car he loved both of them yeah and it was hard then it wasn't it wasn't the way that it was told yeah furthermore there's several places in get back and i think in john's songwriting too we're not really going to get into that here but um there's certainly moments in Get Back where John is clearly trying to communicate with Paul mm -hmm. and doing so very creatively, trying to speak to him through their love language of lyrics and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, it's unfortunate that, that those conversations seem to occur where John is reaching out with like tender love lyrics while Paul is trying to kind of like figure out what what the best blackberry to buy will be to organize their <laughs> their schedule <laughs> on the one hand like i get it, it's like looking back on it from our position here and we love these guys yeah. so it's sort of like oh paul look you know look john in the eyes and i don't know quote <laughs> quote any time at all back at him yeah I don't tell know. him maybe that's what do or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know that's that's what john needs okay so we know 100 percent that paul says that to himself um that he wishes he had done that however have you guys never been around a couple where one spouse is saying oh we have people over this weekend i need to get such and such done can you please go to the store tomorrow and pick up you know scallions and also some you know a magic eraser because our sink is gross <laughs> and the other spouse <laughs> is kind of sitting there and saying oh i love you yeah <laughs> is anyone not infuriated mm. on the first spouse's behalf yeah. yeah it's like focus focus they're trying to do a thing that's right <laughs> well it's like yeah way to show me that you love me is to help me yeah <laughs> right yeah exactly we've got two different love languages going on here totally 
We're like, you're yeah. so sexy. It's like, that's okay. right. You're so cute. Yeah. But we're not doing that right now. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> we're planning <Exactly>. something. <laughs> oh God. I was that person the other day. <laughs> yeah. It, it's really a tough one because softness and love are so fundamental to John and Paul and all the Beatles relationships. Mm-hmm. And some extra emotional upkeep on those relationships would probably have helped things a lot. And we know John needed a lot of love, and we know he was struggling with a lot of painful personal stuff at this point that was interfering with his functionality. But on the other hand, sometimes your partner performing one thankless task, one toilet cleaning, shall we say, (laughs) is worth more than a hundred I love yous. Especially if they're saying I love you as they sit watching you clean the toilet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. It would be nice if if John could get up and be like, you know what? We're doing this today. Yeah. yeah. And or he does. Just, he does after he does, checking him. He does after that. Yep. Or or him dealing with Michael Lindsay Hogg. who is a handful and and he talks Paul through his uh, you know, his uh, anxieties about the show. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely starts pulling his weight. That's the lovely part. Like that is the most, like we didn't know that, that John could be patient. Like we know that he could be sweet and loving, but even in his own words, he's not patient. Yeah. But he can be. Yeah. He can be. And protective. He's like looking at Mm -hmm. the other people who are crowding around, like back off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is my territory. So yeah, patience is a form of tenderness. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a way to show love. I do think that the fact that we actually see John literally saying I love you to Paul's face, albeit obliquely, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we do see it more than more than once in this film. That's pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Mm, it's amazing. Not just the ask me why lyrics, but there's the I love you blue moment. Mm-hmm. Um which again doesn't make sense like the song is not i love you blue right yeah it's a total non sequitur yeah um the fact that paul is so focused on work and like all the logistical realities of what's going on with the beatles that he either doesn't care or you know more likely in my opinion doesn't hear what john is saying mm-hmm says a lot about their communication problems i think it signals to john rightly or wrongly that paul cares more about work than he does about their relationship Mm. yeah i do think that is part of a bigger issue and something that becomes a major issue going forward for them especially once we get into you know their little cat and mouse games in early (laughs) 1970 where John's still finding ways to say I love you to Paul and again Paul just either isn't listening or doesn't want to hear it or doesn't believe him Mm. yeah and that will be the subject (laughs) (laughs) for an upcoming episode the next challenge is to figure out what leads up to the events in September 69 and what happens between September and April of 1970. Because I think anyone watching Get Back knows there's a lot of gas left in that tank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
what happened? What changed? Yeah. We'll try <laughs> to figure it out and make sense of it all. All right. Well, thanks for listening, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. And thank you, all you other ACOM ladies. Well, thank you for being with us. Oh, no, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Talia and Iris. (laughs) Iris and Phoebe. I love you guys. Thanks, Thanks to all of our listeners for your feedback. Thank you for your good ratings and reviews (laughs) on Spotify and iTunes. Shout out to the person who said I have an annoying voice, like their <laughs> daughter's college age friend. <laughs> and to the person who said we don't talk about Paul's paternity suits enough. <laughs> <laughs> Next on ACOM, Paul's paternity suits. Rock stars had sex. <laughs> There you go. Well, he was like measuring skirt lengths at the same time. So, you know, I'm it's a good favorite. multitasker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pregnating people <laughs> measuring skirts at the same time. Yeah. Stay tuned for our upcoming paternity suit episode <laughs> where we talk about what dirtbags all the Beatles were. And they were. I'm just so, yeah. like, I love Paul's idea of celebrity turds. Yeah, right. Just like like, spray paint it. Sell your like shellac it. (laughs) People would buy it. That totally sounds like a John Yoko art piece. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Do you ever think of how thing how different things would be if like Paul and Yoko were the ones who got together? Oh Oh my god. Talk about an insufferable couple two giant weirdos oh, together. Oh, wow. They'd be worse than John and Yoko. Yeah. <laughs> they would they be would, worse. They'd be locking horns constantly. They'd be they'd be those elk that like lock horns and then die because they <laughs> yeah, can't true. extricate yeah. themselves from each other. Yeah. If there's a pile of shit and somebody drops a burrito on top. <laughs> you scrape <laughs> off the shit. Exactly. You're starving. Yeah. You're going to be like, oh, that burrito looks like <laughs> doesn't smell that bad <laughs> right exactly i'll just rip off the part that's covered in shit and I'll eat the rest <laughs> the burrito on the top of the shit pile <laughs> the series I love Madman so much. That was such a, like, what a little gem. Yeah, it's granny music, but we like it's, granny but music. But it's awesome. Exactly. Here. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've got the Cupcake Baby song stuck in my head. Get back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Macrobiotic pills are good at arriving at the right yes. time. <laughs> Everybody's got a piece of toast to chew on. The thing that's up. Up ahead. Ahead. Yeah. my rock and roll my fingers rock and roll bleeding, fingers bleeding. <laughs> and rock and roll fingers hurt. 40 years in the desert he couldn't find his balls <laughs> if you're ever in the shit grab my tit carolina moon yeah. carolina moon my uncle rom's favorite well <laughs> <laughs>